When 50% of your workforce tells you it's a problem, then it's a problem. And it's not being oversensitive. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm so glad you've joined us for the Triple H series. And joining us today is Dr. Garima Sharma. Garima, hello. Hello, Kim. So happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Garima, why don't you start by telling, reminding everybody who you are and what you do here at Hopkins. Thank you so much, Kim. I'm Garima Sharma. I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Cardiology and I am the Associate Vice Chair of Women's Careers in Academic Medicine for the Department of Medicine. And I'm so happy to be here with Kim today and talk to you about really important uh, work that has come out through the cardiology workforce and excited to see if it has broader implications for entire medicine. All righty, so with a little drum roll, why don't you tell people what was the nugget of um, that inspired you to at least to bring us here to be having this conversation? Just kick it off here. Okay, great. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, first of all, for providing this piece of science, the platform that it needs. Um, you know, whenever we talk about science, folks think that gender equity and diversity science is a soft science, but it is not soft science when the implications impact the entire workforce. And in fact, I think platforms like this are very important to disseminate this information so that it can start the thought process as to what would bring change, um, which is lasting. So with that in mind, I I wanted to talk about our paper that came out in the Journal of American College of Cardiology. And the whole premise behind the paper was to understand the prevalence of hostility or toxicity in the workforce. And we define toxicity as a combination of behaviors such as self-perceived discrimination, whether it's age, sex, gender, sexual orientation, race, or ethnicity, based or harassment, uh, which is self-perceived emotional harassment, which can be a range of behaviors such as micro-invalidation, microaggressions, bullying, and then the very egregious sexual harassment, which can be overt or sexual coercion. We combine them into uh, this overall theme of experiencing hostility. And so paper is called the global prevalence of the impact of hostility, discrimination, and harassment in cardiology workforce, and it came out in the American College of Cardiology Journal in May of 2021. Briefly, what did we find? You know, the American College of Cardiology did a survey, a global survey of about 6,000 cardiologists, and we asked them their self-perceived impact that they have had of discrimination, discriminatory behavior, and harassment. Um, and how it affected their workforce and their and their work. So the survey was deployed, um, you know, among over seventy thousand cardiologists, and our survey response rate was eight percent. To be honest with you, I think that for a cardiology survey is pretty good. Um, you know, we had both men and women answer this, and you know, it's very reflective of the state of cardiology workforce. About seventy-seven percent of men answered the question. Uh, questionnaire or the survey questionnaire and about 23% of women. And we all know that women are severely underrepresented in cardiology. So this is a very representative sample of cardiology at large. 
But we also surveyed many different regions. So the regions that were surveyed were Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, Eastern Europe, European Union, the Middle East, Oceania, North, Central, and South America. So we, we believe that this is the first survey of its kind, which has captured a very diverse racial and ethnic diaspora cardiology into many different geopolitical regions. Um, and we were we were very proud that we were able to carry, carry this survey under the auspices of the Women in Cardiology Leadership Council for the American College of Cardiology. So what did we find? Very, um, you know, uh, sad data, but important data because it tells us what the prevalence of this hostility is. Mm-hmm. About 50% of the workforce um, said that they had experienced one type, one or more type of discriminatory behavior, either discrimination or emotional harassment or sexual harassment. And when you look at high-risk features of experiencing these behaviors, women stood out. 70% of women in the workforce worldwide experienced some type of hostility in the workforce. And and the important part here to notice is that men are not immune. About 37% of the men also reported discrimination and harassment. Um, And and this is the, you know, this is very telling because usually men will underreport behaviors uh, like this from data um, in other specialties. And so the overall prevalence, I think, Kim, is perhaps higher. That's right. Uh, it's perhaps higher. And also, you know, because it is so geopolitically different, you know, the perception of what discrimination may be in Asia may be different than what it is in Africa, may be different than what it is in North America. Mm-hmm. Um I think that the overall prevalence may be a little higher than what we think because some behaviors may be very pervasive and uh, frankly tolerated um, and, and some may not. And so, you know, I think we require more data um, to understand region specific issues and that may lead to region specific implementation of change. But in addition to that, um, you know, when we divided these behaviors, about 30% said that they were Uh, experiencing emotional harassment. And this is important because emotional harassment often is very difficult to measure. It is this daily chipping away at your confidence, invalidation, microaggression, bullying, um, that sometimes is very difficult to report um, because it, it probably is so pervasive. 30% said that they had experienced some sort of discrimination. And in terms of overt sexual harassment, our survey data showed about 4%, which is less than what has been reported in other surgical specialty data. And I just feel that this may just be underreporting. So, uh, you know, in terms of, we also did multivariate analyses to show that women were about three and a half times more likely to report these behaviors than compared to men. And then most importantly also can both men and women early career cardiologists were most likely to report discrimination harassment. So I think, um, you know, if we're thinking about interventions that may be specific, you know, to make cardiology a viable option for future generations, I think we really have to focus on the high risk groups Mm -hmm. that are complaining of not being 
valued and not being well treated. And, and this mistreatment is important because already the pipeline in cardiology for women is very, very leaky. Mm-hmm. You know, the overall prevalence of women cardiologists is just about 15%. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're and the ones that are in the workforce are close to four times more likely to experience hostility and harassment. This, you know, Grima, I, so many thoughts as usual running through my head and thank you, first of all, for, for doing this work. It is, it's so, um, it's obviously important and it's also carries with it a lot of emotional weight and um, political ramifications. And it's one of those things where I think on the heels of everything we've all been through the past couple years, I feel I feel this as one of those things that's one of the, the a prickly pear, like here's something else, you know, we have to think about, be uber sensitive about and worry about. And it's something else that's dividing us and setting us against each other. And so let, let, if you will allow me, let, what do we say to people who are like, are you kidding me? Toughen up buttercup. This is ridiculous. How can you be successful in the world or academic medicine? If you're so thin skinned, can't you take a joke? Really, do I have to watch everything I say? What is it with this new crop of faculty members or cardiologists that are so uber sensitive to things? That kind of mindset um, help help me understand or help us understand how do we hear that, have some level of um, awareness of that. And then how do we respond to that? How do we live in that space where we obviously don't want to be antagonistic and we also want to blow open the doors of these things that are stigmatizing and not only like this bullying and harassing, but mental health and depression. And if you think about, yeah, maybe what's wrong with me? Why am I taking, why am I, am I so sensitive? Am I thin skinned? Am I being ridiculous? Can't I take a joke? You know, what are the, what are the, let's just play devil's advocate for the eye rolling people or some people who are like, oh my gosh, this is another hot potato. This is something like, why do we, let's not talk about this. Ew, ew. You know, let's not talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such an important question, Kim, because that's often what we hear. And to them, I say, when 50% of your workforce tells you it's a problem, then it's a problem. And it's not being oversensitive. This is, this is a sample representative of the larger workforce. And half of it is telling you that this is a pervasive culture. And to those folks who think, oh, you know, you're too sensitive and it was just a joke and can't you just get along with it? It's, you know, to them, I think we just have to say your time's up. Your time's up. It's, uh, it's, this is not acceptable. It's just not acceptable behavior. And be honest, and honestly with you, Kim, um, people just may not recognize this because it's so pervasive. And, and sometimes, education 
and positive priming and trying to intervene in a way where you say, you know, this is not you, but your statement may come across like this uh, to a bystander or to somebody who may experience it, maybe very eye-opening. And I think generally most, and I really honestly feel most people are just maybe just oblivious. They just may not be aware um, of uh, the consequences and the impact of their statements um, and the language it's used and the manner it's used. And, you know, even simple interruptions when you are talking or subtle languages, body language changes. It's just, um, I think it requires a lot of education, uh, but also a lot of patience to continue to educate without judging. Because the minute you have um, a judgment associated with it, I think you shut out a lot of people. Um, and it's very, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Well, I, I love that, that you've put this, this way of explaining it. And, and I'm thinking about this idea of an assumption ladder, of making us assumptions that we sometimes, we, we operate from these ideas of we have certain levels of, and I'm actually looking at this assumption ladder that I'm learning about available data, moving up the ladder to I'm selecting certain data to observe. Then I make assumptions based on those data that I've selected. Then I draw conclusions. Mm -hmm. Then I take actions. So you're making me think of this assumption ladder as one way of being curious about the things we choose to pay attention to. So that's kind of probably one whole conversation that we could have with somebody about assumptions we make. But the other thing I like what you said is you said something a few sentences earlier. It's not about the person necessarily being like a bad person, but it's the behavior. So that that's fundamental. So I, I imagine any psychologist, uh, any counselor, therapist person would be like, no, you are not a necessarily a bad person uh it's it's translates into that thing you know your intention is one thing but the impact of what you just said or did um may may not at all be what you intended correct you intended to be giving constructive criticism or or you intended to be giving honest feedback or you intended to be funny and then the impact was oh my gosh you know that that hurt me, that made me think that you thought because I am a woman that I couldn't do that, or you made me feel like uh, I don't deserve to be here, or I'm stupid. So that, but then that goes back to that's a conversation of, well, why would you make an assumption that I would think that? So I, I'm envisioning all this thing, again, comes back to communication, and really being clear with each other and honest with each other, which is so hard. And you're busy academic, like you actually have time to stop and say, oop, time out. Dr. Sharma, can you step into the, the smoke <laughs> coat closet with me? Let's have a quick conversation on the assumption ladder. I did this and I think you're there. Yeah. And you yeah. really hurt my feelings and I know you didn't intend that, but I just want to be clear. I mean, how does this work in, in practice? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's so, it, you're so right. You have to have, an open communication, a non-judgmental communication. I think you have to just associate intention and behavior. I mean, you just have to think about them as not being connected in some way. And rather than focusing on the person, uh, you, you focus on the behavior 
and you focus on isolating that behavior and then using it as an example of how that may be uh, consequential to somebody else. And in that way, you you know you don't have judgment associated with it, but with it. So it's very true. But I think most importantly, I think, and, and largely, I think having open conversations about this and making it judgment-free and asking a curious question about, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you said this, I'm not quite sure, is that what you meant? Um, or uh, I'm curious, did you, um, did you mean to say this? Because that's what I heard. Um, you know, those kind of questions are very open leading questions and may create a lot of insight on both sides. And sometimes you come away with uh, a resolution uh, which is beneficial to both sides, and because it, it creates insight on both sides in, in some ways. Yeah, this is this is so good. So I've been, I of course, I'm always thinking of examples and micro. And so the one example I thought about earlier that I didn't quite get my mouth to get around to was as a metaphor. I can't help but think, and I don't have children, and I, I know you do that when we have these conversations with, with some people, it's very difficult to um, express how, you know, the impact of these things. But I'm imagining a, a, a parent saying, if they have, pretend you've got four children mm-hmm. and, and you as the mom feels like you are um, treating your children equally and you love them equally mm-hmm. and you provide the same opportunities and et cetera, et cetera. And then one child, you know, child number three, comes to you and says, mom, I, I, I feel like you're, you know, I feel being, I feel like I'm not being treated fairly, or mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm getting the short end of the deal here, or mm-hmm. I don't like it when this happens. It seems to me I'm always some, some complaint or something. I imagine as a parent, you know, your first instinct would be like, well, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Of course I treat you all equally. I love you all equally. Why, why do you, why would you say that? That doesn't make sense. You're, you can't be so thin skinned. You know, why are you, you know, you're being, you're too sensitive, toughen up. Maybe we would say that. Maybe you would say that as a parent, but I would think that a parent would say, huh, even if that is, that is in by, a, we had a bunch of triangulated people observing in the era where there were objective data that you were, or there was a equal playing field the fact that your lovely child number three came to you yes. and expressed these concerns, wouldn't a part of you be, as you say, curious, gosh, where is he or she coming from with that? Why does she perceive that? Absolutely. And that's where I think not shutting out that individual or that child number three by blaming that child for speaking up and rather saying, well, you know, it's really your fault that you don't understand that I love you equally and you really should be happy. And you've been provided all these X, Y, Z things like your other siblings and they don't seem to have a problem with it, but you do. I think when someone comes to um, a person in authority or a person in leadership, with a genuine, heartfelt, legitimate complaint from their side. I think it's very important to, first of all, not persecute them or not be judgmental 
and really take the complaint for what it is and 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 be very um dispassionate about it in some ways because it is it, it is a perceived behavior and uh, it's a per- it, it, it's a perceived it's a self it's a perception and so whether it is fact based or not is what we need to find and victim blaming and victim shaming and victim isolation isn't really going to solve the issue. It's in fact going to lead to disengagement, disenchantment, burnout, mm-hmm. um, and impact on, um, on, on, on the person. So, and that's what we showed in, in our paper too, the people that, you know, the cardiologists who experienced this hostility um, also complained of disenchantment um, with their work and disengagement and said that they, it impacted patient care and it impacted collegiality um, and collaborations with their colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so that I think is important because it starts to affect patients' mental well-being and, and hostility in the workforce has consequences for patients at large. That's why I think institutions have to take this very seriously. Yeah. Can I make one one more? Um, I want to kind of ask you about one more thing before we go on to like an institutional level. We've had been having these conversations about the micro level, you know, person to person, heart to heart. But I, I felt I feel moved to say two other things. And I can imagine that when I learned in mediation training that you have two person A, person B, and they're coming to me to Kim, we have this conflict here. And person is, you know, she said, he said, and the other person, no, no, it was actually like this. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, well, tell me what happened. Because then Grima could say, well, clearly A, B, C, D, and E happened. Well, mm-hmm. Kim, now you tell me what happened. Well, she's wrong. It was not A, B, C, D, E. It was one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. So you have sets of facts or objective facts from your perspective and from Kim's perspective. Rather than saying what happened, it's Garima, how did you experience that event? And so Garima says, how did I experience it? Well, I uh, walked into the OR and blah, 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 blah. Kim, how did you experience the event? Well, la, 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 la. Why do you use the word experience? We are taught to ask experience because no one can say, Garima, you're absolutely wrong. You did not experience that. <laughs> or your cuckoo crazy pants. That was not your experience. I beg your pardon. My experience was my experience. Right. That is the where you get to the meat of objective data facts aside. Again, if a camera were rolling, it's how did you experience it? Then nobody can argue that experience. Correct. When you get into the conversation. It's very true. That's a that's an excellent point. And I think it's important for all people in leadership to actually listen to what you just said. Because often we get caught up in getting down to the facts. Well, what do you know about the facts when you weren't there to actually see them? So, you know, I think it really is getting down to how both sides experience this and then getting down to the granular details of what may be the the hostile sort of behaviors that came out of those experiences rather than he did this and she did this and she said this and he said this. Yeah. One, the second observation that I wanted to 
kind of pick your brain about was also the recognition, you know, using the mom dad experience with child number three. And then of course, juxtaposing that with a leader in academic medicine or wherever, wherever your work environment is, recognizing, first of all, the guts it takes for someone to kind of like go, I'm, I'm going in there. I'm going in. I'm going in. I'm going to go talk to mom or I'm going to go talk to, you know, Dr. So, Dr. Sharma. It's going to be tough. But that that mode as an as an employee, you know, we're all supposed to be, oh, how are you doing? I'm happy, healthy, blessed. I'm happy, healthy, blessed. Happy, healthy, blessed. Never better. Where you're, you know, you're not waving, but you're drowning kind of wave like, yeah, it's all good. No, it's not good. So the fact that someone can actually kind of muster up the courage to go in and say, mom, dad, or division director, department chair, dean, whoo, to the kind of, I imagine the parent or the dean or the leader is saying, almost taking it personally, sometimes going, oh, because you're telling me that I'm not a good parent, or you're telling me I'm not a good department director. You're telling me I'm not running my situation well. I have somehow failed So I imagine the human instinctive response is to go, oh, you're, you're pointing a finger at me. You're blaming me. I go into defense. Yes. At the same time, again, depending on our personality, the way we're kind of encoded and our, what we bring, the baggage we bring, the assumptions we make in our daily human existence, that can be the instinct to be like, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong, Dr. Sharma. All the while, you know, wow, what what great wisdom and uh, grace and mercy to take that pause, that breath to go, wow, I can't believe Garima actually walked in and said that. How brave. How brave. Yeah. 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 It's so what you've just said is so important because the the other flip side of that is people putting a positive spin on your, you know, perceived negative experience, right? And so they'll say, oh, yeah, I know, but but look at all the great things in your life, and you got a grant, and you got promoted, and you're in a position to actually, you know, have change and affect this, and you look at the positive side of, of this dark cloud, every cloud has a silver lining. And I think it's really important to curb back that toxic positivity and not gaslight the individual who is bringing that up because there is a lot of, you know, overall like gaslighting of of folks that come up with that saying, oh, you know, it's, it didn't really happen that way. That's not how it happened or that that cannot happen that way. We don't have a system like that that works like that. Oh, we can't we, we can't tolerate that that that's not tolerated in here those those kind of responses uh people need to be cognizant of because those actually have further negative consequences on the person who has braved up and bared what they feel and showed their vulnerability because it's not easy to walk into the office and say you know i experienced it this way and it, and it's not just for women, also for men. Right. Um, it's for both. And, and I think that, and, you know, double downing on your um, message of positivity here will not lead to a positive outcome. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we can we can pretend all we want, and there is obviously value of saying, okay, let's be a glass half full versus a glass empty. You want to be the Debbie Downer, or the Eeyore all the time, and yet there is a time and a place when you can't keep putting the lipstick on the pig. I mean, it's yep. so long. Yep. We're going to be like, okay, now no, no more, no more. We have to. Yep. Um, it becoming systematic, systemic. And like you said, too, what what I've always um, appreciated when we talk about these uh, difficult situations and circumstances is not not carving out people or groups of people and this whole division and divisiveness. It's everything seemed to be lately even more so amplification of us versus them. And you replace us versus them with anything, you know, politics, religion, race, gender, sex. Rather, um, when I kind of get in that mode of this other them, but just kind of putting down those walls and recognizing, no, if the rising tide kind of metaphor raises all ships. No, if, if we have a create a culture or an environment or a standard way of interacting with each other, this will help all people of all gender, all sex, all age, all race, yes. all religion, all culture, all degree types, yes. basic scientists, yes. clinicians, the de- department, and, you know, again, broadest, broadest sense of, of diversity and equity. Once we, we, everybody can benefit from is what I'm saying. And I've always liked that attention to, no, this is not just going to hurt you and raise somebody else. We're all going to win. There's no way yes. to get all in from this. And it may not be an immediate win, but can you imagine that if child number three finally starts living and feeling and experiencing life to his or her full potential, how in the world is that going to take away from child one, two, and four? It, you know? It's, it's very true. It, it, it's so true. And, um, and, and thank you for, for that example, Kim, because that really puts into... Uh, perspective how many people may be experiencing inequity. And I think this kind of upliftment is not just for one, but for all. And so all can thrive and overall, you know, drive excellence. Because if one subset or subgroup is really struggling and everybody else is doing just fine, you really haven't achieved um, an equitable situation for everyone. So Right. It's, it's a, all that, almost like that systems approach to family, you know, families systems. Again, back, bring it back to a micro level. Boy, um, you can anybody can appreciate that if there's that one loose wheel, the whole wagon's not going to be efficient until you fix that one wheel. Boy, now we're really flying. Then the family's really moving and grooving the, the culture, the yep. institution and on up the country. If we're all point and right versus uh, somebody it's like, ah, oh, they'll be fine. We got a bunch of other wheels on the, on the wagon. We'll or, or, or calling that person the squeaky wheel. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and saying you just want the greens. So, you know, and, and I think that, that is, that is what exactly. I think we have to sort of move away from. I love it. So let's, let's move to the macro level. What do you, you know, so is that like a, the thought leader in this area? What, what can we do as an, on a bigger level, at the institutional level? What kinds of things do you think we can start um, looking for demonstrations around efficacy and yep. um, outcomes? What can we do? 
Yeah, no, I think that's such a great point because we have data now that this behavior exists and it exists in cardiology and it exists in medicine and it exists in surgery and it exists in medical education and it exists in you know medical school and everywhere, right? And so we know we know the ballpark of the problem and it's there. And I think we have to sort of move away from collecting and compiling and comparing to actually thinking about implementation of important interventions that can be long lasting and can lead to systemic change. And so I was doing this sort of um, review, um, you know, I was looking up systematic reviews of interventions to reduce harassment and bullying in academic medicine. And I didn't find a whole lot of robust data. I found some some smaller smaller studies, but in, in general, um, didn't find something that was very concrete. And I think, you know, it's important to sort of say that this is both an institutional problem as well as a personal individual problem. And I think tackling it from many different levels, from the leadership level, from the institutional level, from the divisional director level, to the program director level, to, you know, the boots on the ground, uh, and the trainee level is is all important, so it has to be multi pronged. Um, I also think that it should be frequent enough to to compare and collect this data. You know, every every institution and every division should know what hostilities in their what's the what's the percentage and uh, where it has moved. I and mean, we do we do a lot of other you know, demographic uh, assessments of our divisions. I think we need to also have a sense of where we stand in terms of culture and climate. Um, um, And I think then coming up with how do you report it? How safely is it reported? How anonymous it is? How effective is it uh, to report? Um, And how quickly is it acted on you know you you send a report you send something online and you fill a form up and then it goes into a black hole and nobody calls you for four weeks and I think it's kind of already too late while you're languishing on the side so I think how how quickly can we report this and are there systems in place within divisions and within departments to individualize this rather than a health system mm-hmm. um, and who's in charge of this and uh, then then what do you do? How do you, you know, what kind of remediation, what kind of mediation, what kind of um, support help is is required in this process? And then also what's the stance of the of uh, the division or the department? You know, are they aggressive enough versus, oh yeah, yeah, I know that happens. We'll get to it at our next meeting. Uh, you know, so having an aggressive stance, prioritizing this, having a system in place, having a person in place um, where someone can go to um, or anonymously report it, uh, but having um, someone to talk to about it. And then also what kind of policies exist at the institutional level that can be a toolkit for um, program directors and leaders and divisional directors to sort of refer to when they don't know where to go. Um, I think those are the very bare minimums. And I think then beyond that, um, making this a part of a conversation that this is an everyday conversation, that this exists and it's wrong and, and it should be changed and enabling 
allyship um, and bystander allyship, where when you see something that is a microaggression, first of all, you recognize it's a microaggression, and then you have the power to intervene and say, I think this can be perceived as X, Y, Z. Did you really mean it that way? Mm. Um, and do it in a way where, um, you know, it's a curious question rather than um, blame. Um, and, and so I think those are some of the things that come to my mind. I think those are so, so many great ideas. It, it makes me think of, I can imagine the scenarios of people saying, this is not a problem in our house. You know, this is not, um, all of four of my children are equally happy. This is not an issue for us. Next, we're good. And I can't help but think of the, you know, here at Hopkins, we have every faculty member every year has undergoes an annual review. Right. And we have periodic faculty satisfaction surveys. You know, let's let's flip that annual re- review, that faculty satisfaction on the department. Let's do an annual, let's do a poll. Mm-hmm. Yes. How, how's the family doing? Are, are we just assuming that we're all doing okie dokie? Uh, let's just, you know, check in. And, and then, it, so I, I can also imagine, I'm thinking of, of course, poor, uh, the, the, pro- the department directors and department chairs who are going, Really, this is just another thing that I need to do. I, as if I don't have a thousand and one things to do every week, and constantly being bombarded with all the pressures that leaders have. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there are myriad, and you know, my heart bleeds for people who are, of course, overworked and under resourced, and who's going to do this and who's going to own it. And yeah, this sounds great, Doctor Sharma, but I can't do this, and I'm going yeah. to ask a faculty to volunteer to, to, to own this whole process. Oh, my gosh. And so I, I, I appreciate the, the weight of this, and yet what happens if we don't do it? You know, and, and, and part of it, like you're saying, it doesn't have to be so heavy-handed that it's witch hunting, and I, and I and I'm was reflecting over this over this weekend over the weekend I was watching me TV the oldies kind of stuff and old sitcoms that back in the day I thought were hysterical and now I looked at them and go oh god <laughs> yeah. I can't be able to have that on TV and I can't believe they just said that and it wasn't even too long ago because like I'm 56 but in college we were watching these things and. And you can't do that now, even like friends, something recent as most friends. But I mean, even those some kind of humor and jokes and jabs and dialogue kind of made me now go, oh, we would not really get away with that. But my point is, I recognize it. And I think a lot of people would recognize it and go, oh, my gosh, we can't do that these days. So that's it's not like a clobbering necessary clobbering over the head. With, you know, I got a Monty Python thing. I'm going to bring out your bed and going down the hallways, bring out the bad people, throw them on the cart. We're getting them out of here. Angry mob. Yeah. Angry mob. Yeah, we're not. It's it's more like, a again, it's not the person necessarily. It's just subtle tweaks of our behavior, which, gosh, don't we, can we all sometimes use a little bit of a tweak 
which is why we do 360s. They ask people to give me feedback. It's like, Kim, yeah, you can be pretty crunchy when you're, you know, driving really hard on things. So dial it back, you know, drop into your feelings, yeah. get out of your, you know, your head and, and use your heart. It, what's the harm in that? I mean, really? Yeah. What's, yeah. is that really going to hurt us? How is, what, what is, what is a bad, let's play devil's advocate. What's a bad thing about doing this? What will have, go wrong or totally cattywampus if we do this kind of stuff or pay attention to this? How can it go wrong? Yeah. It's so, so I think that's a really important question because it can go wrong when everybody doesn't prioritize it the same way. So I think when, when it becomes the agenda of the few, Agenda of the few. Of of the few. When it's, it's, it can't be us against them. Because if you want to really solve the problem, you have to engage the them in your solution. And that's really the crux of working through any conflict. I've taken your, you know, faculty development courses through the Office of Faculty Development. This is something that, that we're taught there. You know, how do you resolve a conflict? And if you're in a conflict, the last thing you want to do is to be a persecutioner or be somebody who says, you did this and put the blame. I think it's really important that we find very open and subtle and graceful ways of engaging our faculty and our workforce and graceful in the sense, positive, graceful way. Um, because this is going to require everybody to recognize and prioritize and feel and act in a very cohesive manner Mm. um, to bring about a larger change for all of medicine. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. This is not excluding. It's we need you. We need you. We need everyone. And that, what, what's better than being needed? We need you. We need everyone. Uh, we're not saying we don't need you. We don't want you. We do. We need you. We, we, are, we are nothing without each other. Nothing. We need right. each Right. Absolutely. And, and that's why I think the more... Divorce the workforces, it forces us to drive these kind of issues to the top because then it doesn't become the problem of a few, mm-hmm. um, but problem of the whole. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Will you please, um, Dr. Sharma, remind us again of this article, fabulous piece, and just read it out to us again, because I know people are going to say, she mentioned it earlier. Oh my gosh, how am I going to find it? I need to read more about this. Please. Absolutely. It's called the global prevalence and impact of hostility, discrimination, and harassment in cardiology workplace in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in May of 2021. Okay. You got it there. This is something you'll definitely want to check out. And if you want to get in touch with Dr. Garima Sharma, her email is gsharma8. So it's g. S-H-A-R-M-A-8 at jimmy.edu. And Jimmy is J-H-M-I.edu. <laughs> but you can also find her on the facultyfactory.org 
Once again, facultyfactory.org website, where you're, you will see that lovely smiling face, and then you can contact her that way as well. So I hope you have enjoyed this conversation and learned from it like I have. Uh, Garima, thank you so much. You are wonderful as usual. Thank you for all you do for everybody. And thanks for being here at Hopkins. And um, till the next time, everybody, tell your friends about the Faculty Factory podcast. Bye, Dr. Sharma. Thank you so much, Kim. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.